0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 415 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Polly Morland speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about how the skills acquired during a 15-year documentary filmmaking career fed into her vocational non-fiction writing – allowing her to blend ideas from self-help, psychology and philosophy with reportage of ordinary yet extraordinary human stories.
1: Polly Morland is an award-winning writer and a documentary maker. She worked in television for 15 years, producing and directing documentaries for the BBC, Channel 4 and Discovery. Her debut non-fiction book, published in 2013, was The Society of Timid Souls or How to Be Brave, which was a Sunday Times Book of the Year. Next came Risk Wise, Nine Everyday Adventures, written while she was a faculty member at the School of Life, and Metamorphosis, How and Why We Change. Her most recent book is A Fortunate Woman, a country doctor's story, in which, in the tradition of John Berger's A Fortunate Man, she shadows the female GP who doctors in the valley where she lives. Polly, prior to working as a writer and publishing your first book, The Society of Timid Souls, your career was in television. So give us a snapshot of the kind of films that you're working on. And I'm interested to know what you brought from that career into writing books.
2: So I spent about 15 odd years... Working in documentaries, and you know and I went in at absolutely at entry level <laughs> answering the phone, picking up the executive producer's dry cleaning, and then gradually worked my way up and I in the end was making films across quite a broad spectrum. I did quite a lot of sort of contemporary current affairs, so Not the kind of panorama investigations, but a kind of snapshot. I did a big series about terrorism, a kind of history of terrorism that came out not long, I think on the first or second anniversary of 9-11. So that was tracking back through terrorism as it had manifested across, across Europe and in Latin America. I did a big series about, oh, I'm trying to remember my... My professional back catalogue. Yeah, no, I did a big series about the kind of economics of organised crime. That was for the BBC. And looking at the kind of economic structures that supported money laundering. and, And, you know, all clustered around a lot of fantastic human stories from both, you know, former criminals and victims of crime. That was a fascinating series to work on. I did some arts television as well. So I basically in short i I worked across quite a kind of broad spectrum of serious documentaries, and it was the most the most fantastic education in a, a certain mode of storytelling i suppose,
1: and you travel quite widely as well. Oh, I you? traveled
2: very widely for it, so which was which was sort of glorious through my twenties and early thirties so you know i was looking I was looking back through through the films i'd made i'm you know i filmed several times in America but filmed in 14 or 15 different countries around the world at different times and it's a very particular mode of traveling it's a very particular way to experience a different place and to immerse yourself in the stories there so it was it was a wonderful experience but there was also there's something of the detachment that you get with particularly with a camera (laughs) actually if you have a camera and a you know, a microphone on a boom and a crew with you. There's both a level of intimacy and there's also... It's a, it's a balancing act, really, <laughs> between a kind of detachment, a distance and an impartiality, but also an intimacy of getting people to talk, trying to help people forget all the... Forget the camera, forget the boom microphone. Getting to the heart of the story. Getting to the heart yes. of the story and, the, and trying to find a way of giving people both the space but also some structure to tell their own stories. Mm. So I learned a huge amount in that. And, I, you know, I felt passionately vocational about it. And to some extent, that's totally connected to my writing life, that sense of st- telling stories. So, you know, I primarily, I, I don't see a break between the two careers at all both at a kind of practical level in that my methods, such as they are, still have a lot in common with the way I worked as, in documentaries, how I now work as a writer, though I work solo now, without the camera crew, etc. But the objective, in a sense, the telling of a human story, that runs through the whole project and remains the thing I feel vocational about, really.
1: Yes, because you, all your books, I guess, involve... Interviewing people and Mm. getting them to tell their stories and Mm. you're
2: just recording it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a difference in the interviewing. I really noticed that and perhaps particularly for my most recent book where I, I conducted really long interviews and they were very conversational. And you'd be kicked out if you interviewed like that in television. So, you know, very conversational. You know, very back and forth. And so that rather more structured Q and A, in a sense, probably what we're doing in this interview, because that's what you do when it's recorded. The, the increasing the interviews for my books have become more discur- you know, more discursive, which I do think at some level builds trust and intimacy and adds to the layers of insight. So though it's never particularly matey <laughs> I've spent such a long time in in television that I do have got I do have a the slightly graham green splinter of ice you know I have the capacity to maintain distance I'm never it never troubles me that I'm sort of getting too close but there's something about that, that, a very conversational way of interviewing that i found incredibly, just incredibly rich. It, that it really yields insight. And so there's, there's definitely respect in which the encounters that I have with my writerly hat on, I suppose my documentary hat on, have a depth to them that I find hugely satisfying and that certainly builds on what I was doing years ago in TV. Mm.
1: So your first book, The Society of Timid Souls or How to Be Brave, I think it's such an inspired subject for a book because I've I've often thought in adult life, well, increasingly in adult Mm. life, that being brave is something that we we all have to do Mm. uh, at certain times.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm guessing that it was inspired by discovering that there actually had
2: been a society society of timid souls. Mm -hmm. Well... Actually, I, found, I came across this, So I'd been kicking around an idea. So I, to that point... So that was my first book coming out of television. And I, I'd covered an, quite a large number of quite relatively extreme stories or, you know, with terrible war trauma and death and destruction and extremity in them. And... And sort of swirled around this question of courage and you know what the hell it is in television for for years, without ever quite without at all getting to the bottom of it without ever really facing it as an idea on its own, and also probably you know probably a sense that I was <laughs> anything but brave um you know really having a, a sense of being quite a kind of anxious and timid soul myself. So I'd, I'd, been, I'd been kicking around an idea um, for some time and then had done you know, a huge body of research and then I'd come across the original t- Society of Timid Souls, which was this, this kind of self-help group in New York, just in the wake of, just immediately after Pearl Harbour. And it was a a self-help group for stage-frightened musicians, and I'd come across this, you know, immaculately written, beautiful little sketch in the New Yorker, that was written about about the the, the journalist had got had had gone to a meeting of the Society of Timid Souls that was full of sort of terrified piano players and and uh, you know quaking sopranos <laughs> and and um, that that is essentially the methods used by this the man who the musician and, and, and man who assembled the Society of Timid Souls um, who, was a, who was called Bernard Gabriel and Bernard Gabriel had come up with a kind of extemporary form of exposure therapy <laughs> sort of so, so the, the pianist would be playing her sonata Quakingly and he would sort of throw telephone the Manhattan telephone directory across the room and slam doors and go ah you you're terrible. People would break wind. You know, sound claxons, and 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 the the point of it being, it was a, it was a very kind of comic sketch. This little piece in the New Yorker, but what it tapped into was an idea about as per the title of a very famous self-help book about, you know, it was a kind of feeling the fear and doing it anyway. It was a an, an exposure to the thing that terrifies you that is the way to summon some sort of courage. And that just seemed a very interesting lens through which to look at this much vaunted virtue, in a, in a sense. So rather than it being a kind of intrinsic quality that people just have, jolly brave, rather than it being that, that it being an acquired virtue and a, a, something that is learnt and rehearsed and built in very extempore fashion, I suppose. And, and that, that then seemed a very interesting prism through which to then go and talk to a very wide spectrum of people who would be deemed to be brave in manifold ways and to explore how they had... In a sense, summoned some metal to face down what they were facing. Yes, and you've got have yeah. got so you've got soldiers in there, uh, and the, you've got yeah. um, performers and uh, type rope walkers, and yes, um, and, and, servers and, 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 and the, the terminally ill, and yeah. people freedom fighters, and, and so it was a really sort of then deliberately wide yeah. snapshot of those people none of whom I think would call themselves brave. Mm. So there's also something very interesting about the, an examination of courage, which you realise it's something that's sort of... It's, it's, the book, in part, is about what we talk about when we talk about courage, because I think people in the, in the midst of being incredibly brave generally don't perceive themselves mm. as being. Mm.
1: And what about writing? I mean, is writing for you about feeling the fear and doing it anyway, in any sense? Oh, gosh, that's
2: a good question. I mean, I'm, I remain riddled with self-doubt. I mean, probably, probably most writers like are. Like every writer ever. <laughs> yeah, ever. <laughs> Just, yeah, Yeah, tremendously filled with self-doubt and, and the sort of slight absurdity of raising your voice. <laughs> um, never, it's never that far away. Yes, I think there are definitely things that I learnt within the process of writing that book about discomfort. <laughs> being okay, being part of the process, being, you know, entirely natural part of the process. I mean, I would hesitate to put writing on a par with many of the courages in that book, which were oh, quite <laughs> yeah, quite considerably upwind of sitting at your desk and, and writing. But there is something about, I mean, there's, there's an interesting aspect to that book, which so one of the areas of fear that I looked at is a kind of reputational fear or the fear of stepping out of the crowd, the fear of being conspicuous, of sort of non-conformity. Just the, the kind of metaphorically putting your head above the parapet. And I definitely think there is an element of that that is in every writer's life. Not least because we spend half our time sitting in a quiet little room on our own writing. It's a very sort of in, insular quiet, tucked away, invisible line of work. And then you publish and suddenly suddenly you have to pop out and come and do conversations like this. And so there's, there's always a point of sort of transition that requires a bit of girding your loins, I think, <laughs> in writing, yeah.
1: I could ask a similar question, I guess, in relation to your next published book, Risk-Wise, Nine Everyday Adventures, mm-hmm. And uh, so this is a journey into the world of risk. Mm. And you profile nine people who work and live with risk every day Mm. as a Paris opera ballet dancer and a family living on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. And I guess, yeah, a similar question is you were considering what risk means and I guess the balance between in our lives, between being too cautious Mm. and being too reckless there's a risk to be taken in writing as well, I guess, isn't there? You, you have to risk that something will work because you're going to invest so
2: much in it. Mm. And also, I mean, and, and it's, this is probably particular to all of my books, is that I try to tell stories that aren't just there as kind of human oddities. <laughs> you know, like, here's a great story, or here's another great story. But they knit together some profound and ancient ideas about how we live and about the human experience and how one can take those ideas, whether sort of from philosophy or psychology, and how those play out within individual human experiences. And so there's, there is an element of risk in terms of trying to take those rather grand ideas from the academy, if you like, and putting them to the test in the real World and sort of taking them out of the ivory tower and exploring them in real life. The risk being one of how to give those ideas a kind of weight in the real. Life. This goes back to my doc- documentary discipline is that I don't think documentary is a light. I don't think it's a sort of flimsy or shallow, I mean it can be, sure it can be, switch on the telly, very easy to see that, but I think that there are in those individual stories, there are profound truths, as anyone who's ever read a novel (laughs) will know, and so it's trying to use that, in a sense use that journalistic process to explore some of those more profound ideas about how and why we live as we do, that feels quite a risky project creatively yes. at some level
1: yes i i totally do, 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 get do, that because i i mean you write the kind of non that i love which is it's a genre bending it's mm. a blend it's, you, mm. you you blend ordinary human mm. stories with there's some self-help in there there's yeah. philosophy psychology uh reportage mm. a bit of smart thinking mm. and a sort of memoir mm. as yeah. well we get a bit of you and i think it's um it's a quite a grand ambition in non fiction so it's i can see where the risk taking comes in mm. because that blend that's it's got to come together hasn't it and you it's a sort of quite a wild ride knowing whether it mm. really will come and the mix will come out how you want
2: mm. yes and that you know there've definitely been stages during the writing of well probably particularly my early books of feeling like i'm carrying a large platter with a very soft-set jelly on it... that could all, you know, fall apart at any given time. But I do think there's a... You know, I feel quite vocational about the purpose of that. I'm horrified by an idea where kind of journalism and human stories sit in one quite kind of easy-to-digest kind of category, always in bite-sized chunks, and the the profound ideas are the preserve of philosophy and possibly the novel, you know. And I've always found myself inspired by the non-fiction that is audacious in terms of the ideas it takes on that's the aspiration yeah goodness knows whether whether I reach it but that's what I'm reaching for
1: I admire that aspiration and and also they're helpful to read your books as well I'm thinking of Metamorphosis Mm. the, the, the third book which is about change in our lives and you know change is one of the fundamentals so you think mm-hmm. of the way of the peaceful warrior talking mm-hmm. about the fundamentals being change mm-hmm. the fact that you life makes no sense at all mm-hmm. so you try to understand it and humor which i think is a yeah. wonderfully three-pronged <laughs> attitude to That's have fantastic. to life yes embracing change is something that we we all have to do and it is can be one of the most problematic things that we have mm-hmm. to do in life can't it
2: and yeah. bewildering and bewildering. fundamentally bewildering the fact that it unfolds by increments, or some, you know, sometimes it comes about in quite kind of catastrophic happenings, but that incremental change is is unfathomable. And if you think about it, it sits at the heart of every novel, every Shakespeare play, every. It's ab- so central and remains very difficult to fathom. I think for everyone at some level. So sort of, in a way, coming up with, or pulling together, rather than coming up with, pulling together some frames through which to think about it and some stories through which to think about it. Felt like quite a useful project in in some sense. Yeah, it certainly felt useful to me and I I hope it's been useful for some of my readers.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think there are tales of serendipity and happenstance in most writers' lives. And an example of this income right in saying it led to your fourth and most recent book mm-hmm. a fortunate woman and we were talking about your your travels and mm-hmm. how far you went in pursuit of stories as mm-hmm. a documentary maker but this fourth book is very much rooted where you live in the valley where you live very rural hidden secluded place um, in fact, you can probably hear on this recording the wind. There's a storm <laughs> coming. away. There's, there's a storm coming. Yes, yeah. so we're in deep countryside here. So tell us about how mm. this latest book came to be, because it's quite a different
2: work for you, I think yeah. I'm right in saying. Yeah, Yeah, it is. I've had quite a big big gap between my last book and this most recent one, during which I'd been, I, you know, I'd been giving a lot of thought to looking for a story, a single story. I said having, I mean, I've, I adored writing the earlier books and they're these, you know, they began with an idea and then composite stories were pulled together in order to to serve that idea. But I I had I definitely had an itch, <laughs> if you like, really wanted to find a single story and I'd been kicking around various ideas but what was so extraordinary about the story in my most recent book is the deep found me I mean at risk of sounding a bit woo-woo I'm not I'm not particularly woo-woo about it I'm not sure about the fates but it did find me so what happened was, so this was a few months into the pandemic and my lovely elderly mother had been very, very unwell, so she was suffering from Alzheimer's and had had a very extremely chaotic, difficult, gruelling, gruelling year and then was admitted to hospital, caught Covid and was then moved into a care home where she was to spend the rest of her life. And, uh, you know, it had been an experience of very intense experience of healthcare in a sense and and contemporary health care she had excellent care at every turn but she she wasn't being looked after by someone she specifically knew so that's in a sense the background to this i am in her house clearing it because if we're going to pay for this care home we need to clear the house and my mum adored books and her house was silted up to the rafters with built books. <laughs> there were books on every surface. The bookcases were stacked double depth. you'd remove one lot of books and there'd be a whole other row of books behind it. so i'd i'd all d I'd been standing there all day in the spot in in one of the rooms in her house, packing up boxes of books and then I'd spotted this book that had fallen down the the back of one of her bookcases, and it had never—it it never hit the floor. It was sort of hung on a on a metal strut at the back of the shelf. And I should say at this point that my—you know—my mum lived 150 miles away from me in the in the valley, up in the Midlands. Anyway, so I fished this book out, pulled it off the strut, you know, smoothed the dust off it, and opened it. And it was a book by John Berger, who I'd read somewhat. So I'd read Ways of Seeing. I was familiar with some of his work on photography. But I'd never come across this book, and it was called A Fortunate Man. I'd never even heard of A Fortunate Man. And I'd opened it, and it's a narrative about a doctor working in a valley and has these beautiful black-and-white photographs in it. And I'd opened to the front page, and there was this photo of the river down in the valley there. I mean... Literally, I, I, you you know, I know the it. field. Oh, yes. totally. Yes. In a pin shop, I know the field, I can picture the tree, at the hedge, line. the hedge line's moved a little bit. But, you know, instantly. And I thought, what is this? And I plugged it into my phone to find out. And sure enough, Berger's book was written about a doctor in the valley Right, in the section of the valley. In where the I, 60s,
1: wasn't in it? The,
2: yes, so it was in the mid-60s. And so the book is, is an account of a doctor working in this valley. And I think the um, Berger and the photographer Jean Moore shadowed the doctor in 1966. And the book was published in 1967. And actually this edition had been from 1971. So I realised that my mum had bought it when she was pregnant with me. So I was born at the end of the 1971. But what was so extraordinary about it is that, you know, I knew the Doctor. Not well, but I knew of the Doctor. It's a small community here. I knew of the Doctor who serves that community today and, and is much loved by that community. So that there's something about the a sort of collision of connections where, as a family, we'd had this very intense experience of a possibly rather transactional model of, of health care. I'd found this book. It was about a place that I know and love, and I, in a sense, knew the successor of this doctor just over fifty years on, and we were in the middle of this extraordinary event—the pandemic. This extraordinary experience, and and so the whole thing sort of coalesced in about twenty minutes into a. Oh, I've, I mean, I've got to write this. Well, sometimes it's fast for writers, isn't it? When things just kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. I mean, back. it was. It literally, I had the title. <laughs> I said, right, I know who it's about, and it's about a woman this time. You know, and I, I very much wanted to tell. I've written a lot about men in my previous books, some women as well. But I really, you know, I wanted to tell a story about a woman. Yes, it, so it, it came together. What I didn't know at that point was that there was another whole layer of coincidences where the, doc, the doctor today had read the same book, A Fortunate Man, as a teenager, been profoundly influenced by it she's not local she's in a different part of the country and was already working in the practice in this valley before she even realized that the book was about the valley where she'd lived so there were these double layers of serendipity and coincidence and so when I'd got in contact with her and I said have you ever read A Fortunate Man she was yes I have it had the most extraordinary impact on my career pathway you know so well
1: not only that but you were you were writing about her work as the GP in the valley and a GP very embedded in the community Mm -hmm. and we should say actually that like the original The Fortunate Man Mm -hmm. A Fortunate Woman is a again you know it's a work of I I wanted to call it repertage but that makes it sound a bit cold I mean Mm -hmm. it's you you blend in nature writing we get this extraordinary sense of the landscape and the natural world that you're both working in and it's also a collaboration with a photographer as the Mm. original was so Mm. so you work with a photographer called Richard Baker who Mm. also took photographs for Riskwise Wise. I mean I love that so the photographs are interspersed through the book what does that bring to the collaboration for you, apart from the, the sort of obvious illustrating it? Mm. It's like it, almost going back to your documentary days when you had uh, words and
2: pictures, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, oh my goodness, the joy of it, because occasionally I have missed pictures. <laughs> in, so there are pictures in Riskwise, but not pictures in the Society of Timid Souls or Metamorphosis. So what does it add? It's an, so, I mean, you say it's an illustration... In some sense, I see the pictures, particularly in A Fortunate Woman, as being in some sense parallel to the mm. story rather than purely illustrative.
1: Yes, that wasn't a very good... I didn't put that very well. They they are, they are enha- certainly enhance it. Mm. And give us glimpses. It's not as if it's an illustrated book, but they just give us wonderful glimpses that enhance your, yeah, and your they, storytelling.
2: And so I think they tell their own story. And so yes. this is the thing that's wonderful about documentary making, is that you don't always have to say everything. <laughs> Sometimes you can show something and you can create a mood or you can create a breathing space. And so there's something in... If you like, not quite the content of the storytelling, but the sort of music of the storytelling, the cadence of the storytelling, that's really thrilling to use pictures in this narrative. So yes, it gives a sense of place. So you can see ah oh, yes, I can see the shape of the valley, I can see the texture of the woodland, or I can see the shape of the doctor's eyes when she looks over at a patient. So the the photographs are both of the landscape and we had a few days of photography access to the to the surgery, obviously with patient permissions and all the rest of it quite complicated from that point of view but so the, there are these observational photographs of her at work and beautiful landscape photos of the landscape
1: and I think what it achieves is on the one hand I guess you could say it's a documentary record of a particular time that we've all been through because you can see photographs of the doctor at work and wearing mm. PPE and and obviously that's that's very much recorded in the text so in that sense it's it's sort of specific to a time and a place but there's also a universality to it in terms of thinking about themes of what it is to doctor what it is to Mm. care for people Mm. at different times of their lives and for that reason you are deliberately you don't name the doctor you don't name where it takes place and that's That's very powerful because it makes us think in much more general terms about what medicine is and in a kind of ancient sense, really, what it is to tend to people Mm. and
2: look after them. And how very central the doctor-patient relationship, the warmth of human connection is to that medical process. You know there are various medical studies that now look at um, that have now looked at the kind of medical efficacy of of continuity of care and the impact on kind of patient outcomes and even on you know sort of lower referral rates, lower hospital admissions, even lower death rates. The mortality rate with good continuity of care is lower. Uh, you know greater patient satisfaction, greater physician satisfaction. You know there, there are many metrics, if you like, by which continuity of care and its efficacy and its importance can be measured nevertheless it's something that has perhaps slid from view in contemporary health care or you know under manifold pressures you know economic social and so on but this book tries to sort of look at that through stories so you can look at those statistics <laughs> the ones i've just listed you know and statistics tell a certain story but without really exploring the story, the human stories at the, part, at the heart of that, it's hard to communicate that. And, and so I think if, if the book had a kind of purpose or an, or an aim, it's to communicate the value and the subtlety and the nuance of, of those relationships.
1: Well, I think human stories run through all your work, don't mm. they? human storytelling as a writer but I wondered what you feel are the preoccupations that run through all your work and maybe always will
2: so having spent you know many 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 years interviewing people and telling their stories I remain as fascinated as I ever was by people's inner lives and I think there's something about the telling of those stories and the exploration of those in inner lives and that you know regardless of background regardless of circumstance there is such a world you know it is the world in a grain of sand I, I like the idea of a world in a grain of sand and I like to take quite a democratic approach to the notion of an inner life so an inner life is not just the preserve of kind of writers and intellectuals and politicians and people that you might see on the t- you know Everyone has one in there, and so I have a sort of endless fascination and warmth <laughs> towards the the kind of subtleties of people who aren't normally interviewed, really, or who aren't, you know. And I think that's the thing I want to communicate. I think I'm more interested in the people that you perhaps haven't heard of <laughs> than the ones you have. And finding a way to give voice to those stories feels like a good use of my time. You know, it feels like it, I, I feel quite vocational about it, I think.
1: Thank you so much, Polly. it a great pleasure oh, it's been listening to you.
0: That was Polly morland in conversation with Carolyn Sanderson. You can find out more about Polly on her website at polymorland.com. And that concludes episode 415, which was recorded by Carolyn Sanderson and produced by Conan McPhee. Coming up in episode 416 in My Favourite Author, RLF writers explore the influence that favourite authors have had on their own work. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk Thanks for listening.